So we're looking at the promises of God, which he makes from creation all the way up to the end of the world. And we see again today that these promises of God can be either positive or negative, depending on how we respond to him. If you have your Bible, we're in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. Thyatira, the fourth of seven churches, reading one letter. And to be frank, it is not a very interesting town. There's very little written about it. The only person we know of from there is Lydia. And in Acts chapter 16, the only thing we know about her is that she left. The employment (laughs) prospects are very dull. The sports teams are feeble. There is a complete lack of culture in their town. Basically, it is Baltimore. (laughs) It's not a very interesting church either. Basically, it's the Lutherans. We're not going to go there. But there's just nothing going on in the church or the town. Jesus, though, he doesn't look at it this way. He doesn't look at at people and places with human eyes. He sees it all from a perfect vantage point. He knows all things. He's not looking at the superficial aspects of how glittering a town or a church might appear to be to us. Far deeper than that, verse 19 tells us that he has eyes like flame of fire. Now, Revelation, as we have seen, uses these great images to make very simple points like this. Jesus has perfect vision. He sees things that we overlook. And from his perspective, a perfect perspective, he says to this little church, I know some good things about you, your love and faith, service and patient endurance. These are great qualities for any church. Love and faith. These are two of the most important things that any church can have. And Scripture says these are not intellectual qualities. These are urges, love and faith, that manifest in human behavior. And looking at the way they behave, Jesus says of them, your latter works exceed your first. You are growing in Christ. Your behavior is getting holier, he says. That is the weird thing about difficult times and difficult places. They can actually enhance your faith. Now, I've had several conversations recently with people who we've had enough pandemic now to know that uh, their lives are not where they were a few months ago. I have found several members of our church are growing in their faith during this season. And uh, I do not think there is a uniform reason for this, but some patterns are certainly starting to emerge. Perhaps for some of us, it is facing mortality. For some of us, it's suffering hardship. For some of us, it's recognizing the limitations of our false gods. You cannot trust a business when it is not open. You cannot trust an investment when it keeps going down. Perhaps it's nothing that dramatic. Perhaps for you it's just been a bit of time to think. I don't know that there is one cause, but often this is how it works. Difficult places, difficult times strengthen your faith. And uh, this is not a surprise to any of us. Often the spiritual realm mirrors the physical world around us. Often spiritual matters, they really reflect physical matters. That's not a surprise either because one God made it all and is sovereign over it all. And so the spiritual realm and the physical world often play by the same rules. 
Romans, I'm not making it up, Romans chapter 1 makes the point, verse 20, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So just think about your physical environment for a moment. What is it that you need to make a plant grow? Well, you need dirt and you need drizzle. That is why the UK is such a green and pleasant land. We've got lots of both of those things. Just think about it, though. It's when it rains. It's when it goes dark. It's overnight that the plants grow. What is the brightest, driest, cleanest, sunniest place you can think of? It is a desert. Stuff doesn't grow there. Think about the seasons. Think about how spring follows winter. Think about fields. Think about how you leave them fallow in order to be more fertile next time around. Think about the concept of pruning that we had there in our gospel reading. I went to a vineyard once in England, which is weird. They make champagne, much better than that French muck. And uh, on the wall of the vineyard, they had 12 photographs, one taken each month of the year of a vine. And you see the vine, it's growing, and it's growing, it's growing. And then a third of the way through the year, it's just been hacked down to a little stump. And you think, what on earth have they done that for? And you keep looking at the images on the wall as they go along. And by the end of the year, it's bigger than it was at the start. Pruning leads to fruit and to growth. Pruning increases yield. Now, look, just think about muscles. You know, what is, what is it to exercise? It is to tear and rip a muscle, and then it grows back stronger. Think about great jewels and gems. The scholar Mark Sayers says, think about the strongest, most beautiful, expensive thing known to man, a diamond, and then think about how it is formed. Underground, in the dirt, unseen, in the dark, under enormous pressure. In the dirt, it starts off as dirt, but eventually it emerges as a diamond. It is when times are hard, when the pressure is on, that things grow in nature. And it's the same in the spiritual world. So some of us will emerge from this difficult season stronger than we were before. Some of us will do very well in the pandemic, but not everyone. Verse 20, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, unlikely her real name, by the way. Calling a Jew Jezebel is like calling an American George III. It's just not the done thing. She was an Old Testament character. She worshipped false gods. She had a position of influence and leadership married to King Ahab. She led Israel astray into evil with her. She is, in fact, one of the worst people in Judeo-Christian history. And there is someone like her, a Jezebel, in their town. And like her, she's in a position of authority and leadership. She has a voice. She is a prophetess, a teacher. And look what she uses her skills and uses her influence to do. Verse 20. Seducing my servants. Now, a tiny bit of comfort here, just subtly contained in this language. Note that she is seducing them. She's not yet fully seduced them, but she's in the process of doing so. Note also that God still calls them my servants. There's still an identification with God here for many of this group who are being led astray. Led astray, but not yet fully 
away from God. It is an urgent matter. Things are not going well, but there is time to repent. Some of them are falling for it, though, aren't they? Some of them are being seduced. Why are they falling for it? Why are they following such a wretched person? You might wonder. Well, I think because they want to is the simple reason. We, when we fall in hard times, often try to shorten the hard times ourselves. We try to fast forward to the spring. We try and get through it quickly. We try and save ourselves. Some scholars believe that the Christians in this little town with very few employment prospects were heavily influenced by people like this and by this group of powerful guilds like the Women's Guild and the Altar Guild. That is a poor joke. These are trade organizations, trade unions, guilds, groups associated with particular crafts, metal workers and leather workers, or or each of them had their own guild. Each of them had their own group. You were not allowed to work if you did not belong to the guild. If you wanted to get on in this town, even in difficult times, in a difficult place, you had to be a member of the guild. The problem is these guilds were pagan. They were presided over by people like Jezebel. Banquets that were compulsory often descended into idol worship and paganism and debauchery as the alcohol flowed. One thing led to another. It was almost impossible to be a Christian and have a job in this town. What is the attraction of this Jezebel? The attraction is that she says to them, with all of her authority, and all of her seduction, don't worry. doesn't matter. You can be a Christian and belong to one of these girls just like everybody else. You can believe in God and behave like those that don't. That is different context, essentially the entire teaching of the Western church in the latter half of the 20th century. You can be a Christian and look just like your non-Christian neighbor, don't worry. You can know what you know, but do what they do, and you'll be fine. And the teaching is attractive because she's saying to them, you can simply isolate yourself from these difficult times by being both things. You can avoid that refining process by being both things. And and how long will it be before some of us are in the same position, I wonder? How long will it be before some of us find our jobs are on the line unless we sign up to a particular thing or promote a particular idea? How attractive will it be to you when you're facing a situation like that if your pastor stands up and says, don't worry, it's okay. You can be both. Do they fall for it? Well, Revelation says for the most part, yes, they do. There are, in fact, five different groups of people here in this passage. Five responses, if you like, to this false teaching. I'd like to jump around a little bit through the verses as we look at them briefly. Let's start with verse 23. So a false teaching, a seduction that says, you can believe what you believe and know what you know, but do what everyone else does. Five different reactions. Verse 23, her children. Now, these children of Jezebel, I think, are fully on board with her teaching. They are fully seduced, if you like. Like the children of God, they're all in the children of Jezebel. 
One scholar refers to them as totally converted. Another calls them her most intimate disciples, the disciples of Jezebel. That's the first group. Then there's a second, verse 22, kind of going backwards, aren't we? Those who commit adultery with her. Now, this could be literal. Clearly, these dodgy banquets descended into things like that, but often in Scripture, the the motif or image of adultery is used metaphorically to describe the, the worship of more than one God. And that was going on at the banquets as well. In fact, verse 14 makes it explicit that that both things were going on. Perhaps it's a bit of all of this. What is it to do adultery? Well, she might not be their primary love, but they keep going back for more, don't they? That's their issue, their second group. They're not fully in with her, but they go back a lot. Then verse 20, there's a third group, different again, those that tolerate her. This is interesting. They're not really involved at all, are they? Tolerating her. They're more like neutrals. Tolerance doesn't mean to say that you approve of something or like something. What it means is you disapprove of something, but you put up with it nonetheless. Tolerance is an absolutely horrible idea. It means to ignore something wrong. That's what this group is doing. The third group turns a blind eye to Jezebel and to the guild and to her teachings. Maybe they go to the banquet, but they leave early because the babysitter has an early start or, you know, you've got a headache or something like that. They're trying to be a bit of both. They neither resist nor fully get on board. They just try and skate through without taking a real position. We're going to call them the neutrals. And so already we have three different groups, three different human responses to this teaching, all in adulterers and neutrals. And as humans, from a human perspective, I bet we're already starting to rank them in our minds, differentiate between them in our minds, right? All in. No way. Dreadful people. Adulterers. Well, you know, we all make mistakes. Neutrals, fine. (laughs) They're not really involved at all. Christ, remember, has eyes that burn like fire, and he sees things that we don't see, and he knows things that we don't know. And with perfect vision and perfect knowledge, he says to them, you're all wrong. All three are the same. Verse 20, I have this against you, he says. Even your tolerance is wrong. Then he makes several promises. Verse 22, nuanced differences between the groups receiving them, but none of them are nice. I will throw her onto a sick bed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. Verse 23 goes on. I will strike her children dead. I will give to each of you according to your works. Then in case you're not buying my thesis, to enhance the contrast, we find a fourth group. It's a different group. Radically different. Verse 24, to the rest of you. Another group distinct from the others in Thyatira, clearly distinguished from everyone so far. And this group alone gets a a positive promise. I will give authority, verse 26. You know, you're kind of downtrodden at the moment, but a time will come. Verse 27, as I myself have received authority from my Father. Jesus is promising to make this fourth group, feeble though they seem, like himself. He's going to make them Christ-like. 
He's going to give them the authority that he has. You can be just like Jezebel, or you can be just like Jesus. That is the promise. There's no middle choice. There's no bit of both. There's no hedging your bets. It is one or the other. Now, if that were all the passage contained, we'd have a great little teaching, wouldn't we? Very useful. What have we learned so far? Life is hard, we know. Hardship either nudges you towards faith or towards self-help. Christ sees an awful lot more than we do, and he says, really, there are no neutrals in this world. You're in or you're out. Pick a side, Jesus or Jezebel. By default, by the way, it's Jezebel, and that is it. What a lovely little teaching. But I think there's five groups, and we've not come to the fifth yet, have we? The fifth group is kind of hidden a bit, but it's in there, if you look closely enough messes with all our human categories, messes with the neatness of our thesis a little bit, messes with our concept of goodies and baddies. It is a concept, this fifth group, so distinctly weird and unfair that the only word I can come up with to describe it is Christian. (laughs) Verse 22, those who repent, that's the fifth group. You can move groups. You can be neutral. You can be an adulterer. You can be all in, a child of Jezebel, a child of Satan, our passage even seems to insinuate, but you can still repent. In fact, verse 21 says that he even gave Jezebel herself time to repent. So don't be coming in here, or sitting at home, in fact, at the moment, telling me that you're too sinful for God to redeem you. Rubbish. Even Jezebel has time to repent. God is gracious. God's sovereign grace is greater than whatever sin you've come up with. That's the beauty of this passage. Even if you've fallen for the seduction, God calls you back from that to be a child of God. What a kind God, what a gracious God we have that he even gives this prophetess time to repent. The moment we do, The moment we repent, we move, we leave our old group, and we move into a new one. This is incredibly good news. Salvation is a gift from God. In fact, Jesus is a gift from God. We can have been up to our necks in sin, and the moment we turn to Christ, we join that group number four, the faithful. God starts to call us the faithful, even if we've only been faithful for five minutes. Isn't that wonderful? He is the last promise. Jesus himself is the promise to the newly repentant and to the long-standing, long-standing faithful alike. He says, I will give him, this is verse 28, this is the offer to you, even if right now you're wallowing in sin and self-help. He says, I will give him, that's you, the morning star. Now, Revelation 22 tells us that the morning star is, in fact, a name or title for Jesus himself. A strange phrase, but Revelation has plenty of them. Uh, This is something bright, this star, something that outlasts the night. Maybe it appeared in the night when you needed it the most. It's still shining in the day, bright in the sky. The night has passed. The day lies open before us. It's an image of a new start, a new morning, a new day. 
And the essence of what Jesus offers to you is himself. Something bright and new that changes the darkness of your night into the brightness of the day. And and what do you emerge as from the darkness is his question. Which group is it going to be for you? He will die for us. This is the promise here. To give us a new start. To take away our sin. To keep our sin in the grave where it belongs. And to resurrect for us and to rise. A bright new start in place of our sin. Jesus makes a simple promise. I will give you myself. Let's pray. Lord God, it's amazing that we could have been running around trying to balance the the calls and comments of this world and that we can have been suffering and we can have been afraid and we can have been driven underground and you call us out into a new day. Thank you, Lord God, for your grace in doing so. And Father, whichever of those groups we may have thought we were in, we pray, God, that you would call us to repent and join the faithful. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your grace. Amen.